Welcome to What Your GP Doesn't Tell You, the podcast for both doctors and patients with me, Liz Tucker. This week, I'm talking to Dr. Mark Horowitz, one of the authors of a new handbook, Maudsley Debescribing Guidelines. It provides step-by-step instructions on how to safely stop all commonly used antidepressants, benzodiazepines, gabapentinoids, and Z drugs. These medications have turned out to be far harder to stop than anyone thought they would be. And for Mark, this is very much a personal as well as a professional interest. At one point, he was on five different drugs, and ironically, although he was working in London at the Institute of Psychiatry, found the most useful information about deprescribing came not from the medical profession, but from peer support websites. So Mark hopes this guide will provide much-needed medical assistance and advice on how patients can effectively taper off these drugs. One of the things I found most surprising was how a small amount of medication can have a completely disproportionate effect. So in some cases, a one milligram dose can have nearly half the effect of a 20 milligram dose, which means patients may need to taper far more slowly as they move down to smaller and smaller amounts of a drug. But before we get to Mark's interview, a brief request from me. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to leave a review on Spotify or Apple, that would be much appreciated. It really helps. You can also become a paid supporter of the podcast at patreon.com slash you or via PayPal on my website, whatyourgpdoesnttellyou.com. A huge amount of work goes into both the research and production of this podcast. So even a small amount of money makes a huge difference. And you can find out more information about the pod on my website, where you can sign up for the podcast mailing list, follow me on Twitter at Liz C. Tucker, and on my Substack account, liz.tucker.substack.com. Many thanks. Now back to the interview with Mark. Dr. Mark Horowitz is a trainee psychiatrist and currently working in London as a clinical research fellow in the NHS and is also an honorary clinical research fellow at UCL. In addition, he's completed a PhD in the neurobiology of depression and the pharmacology of antidepressants at the Institute of Psychiatry, Psychology and Neuroscience at King's College London. During his PhD, he received two prizes from the British Association of Psychopharmacology, and he runs a deprescribing clinic in North East London. Here's his interview. So, Mark, thank you very much for joining the podcast today. Thanks for having me on. Now, Mark, finding out how to deprescribe from medication isn't just a professional interest. It's also a personal one because you're trying to taper off certain drugs yourself. That's right. So I first came to this topic really from my own experience. I was prescribed an antidepressant like one in six adults in most Western countries when I was in medical school. I was in my early 20s and I was prescribed after a short consultation with a GP. I was living then in Australia an antidepressant, which after cycling through a few different ones, ended up being Lexapro or escitalopram, one of the most commonly prescribed antidepressants in America, a bit less so in the UK. And I took that drug for about 15 years before really trying to stop taking it. I was never very sure what its effect was, but I sort of believed that it was probably helping me and that I should keep taking it. I only tried to come off at the end of my PhD. I did a PhD in how antidepressants work in London at King's College. 
And it was only after when I was writing up my PhD that I had some time to start coming off my, my antidepressant and I had an awful time coming off. And I ended up having what was really the worst experience of my life. I had a lot of trouble sleeping. I had panic attacks that lasted throughout the day. I sort of wake up in a terrible fright. And after weeks of that, it really wore down my will to keep on going. And I ended up going back on my medication. And I've returned to this topic of how to come off antidepressants. And I've learned a lot from various online peer support websites. In fact, rather than the, the psychiatrists and the academics around me, and I'm now coming off this antidepressant that I was put on all those years ago, now almost 20 years ago, and a variety of other drugs that I've accumulated over time. In that process, I've learned a lot about how to come off medications that I hadn't learned in my training, either in medical school or in my psychiatry training. And I have set up a clinic to help people come off their drugs. And I've written this handbook because I became aware most doctors had had no lectures about how to come off antidepressants or other psychiatric drugs. And because of that, they were using rules of thumb that had been in the guidelines for years, saying that people could come off over a few weeks, and that had caused huge trouble for patients around the world. How many drugs are you taking, Mark? As of today, I'm taking two psychiatric drugs, two antidepressants. One is still Lexapro or Estelopram, which I'm at the tail end of. And the other drug is mirtazapine, known as Remeron in the UK. And so at one point, I was on five medications that are generally uh, used for psychiatric reasons, two antidepressants, a sleeping tablet, a stimulant, and another specialised sleeping drug called Xyrem or gamma-hydroxybutyrate. I mean, to someone who isn't a psychiatrist, that seems a huge number. To someone who, who is a psychiatrist, it's, it still seems like a large number to me. Because obviously during this period you were going through medical school. Did you ever sort of question that and think, is it a good idea for me to be taking so many drugs? Um, it sort of built up slowly. As I said, I was given an antidepressant when I was around 20 or 21. You know, it was very normal to me. People around me were using antidepressants. I came from a very medical family. My mother is a pharmacist, and so I think medication was highly normalised in our house. I guess we lived in a very uh, pharmaceutically orientated house. So taking one medication didn't seem all that abnormal to me. I can get taking one medication, but by the time you've got to five, are you not as someone who's a medic beginning to think, gosh, that feels like a lot of drugs? It was only by the time I was in my 30s that I was on five drugs. So in my 20s, for most of that period of time, I was only on one. I guess everything came with a reason. I received a diagnosis of narcolepsy. So I was told for many years that that was my condition. That was a condition of having trouble sleeping deeply at nighttime, and which caused me a lot of daytime tiredness and memory and concentration issues. So I was given a stimulant during the day to help me stay awake and be more alert. I was given a sleeping tablet at night to make me sleep better. An extra antidepressant was added in because the stimulant made me more anxious. You know, looking back, it's very clearly what's known as a prescribing cascade where the side effect of one drug leads to a side effect of another drug. I mean, I wasn't a completely happy passenger sure. in that trip. I was always trying to work out, could I reduce one medication and take more of another one? You know, I was sort of always trying to work out what was the exact right mix of ingredients? 
I think it it comes down to working as a psychiatrist. I saw people on multiple medications. It was more normalized for me than it was for other people. I remember a consultant psychiatrist I, I worked with in Sydney was delighted with me because he thought it was so interesting. I was on all these medications and I had insight into how they worked from both sides. And he loved to discuss it with me, how this medication worked and why this was useful. And I guess, although I wasn't as cheerful as he was about it because it was it was my body, you know, I guess sharing something of that, that this is, you know, what treatment looks like, an analogy when it comes to heart disease, people are often on four or five medications. And so I guess I existed in a sort of, it was all normalised for me. So Mark, in the new handbook you've written about de-prescribing, what are the main groups of medication you're looking at? So the, the Maudsley de-prescribing guidelines that is the, the handbook we're publishing will go through all different classes of antidepressants. So we we essentially chose the 25 or so antidepressants that are most commonly used in America, Europe, the UK, Australia, and Canada. And that includes older drugs like the monoamine oxidase inhibitors. It includes tricyclic antidepressants. It includes the SSRIs, SNRIs, and other miscellaneous drugs that are very commonly used like metazapine and a variety of other drugs. So it'll, it'll cover all of those drugs. It will also cover all commonly used benzodiazepines, drugs like Alprazolam or Xanax, Valium like diazepam, clonazepam like clonopin, sleeping tablets known as Z drugs, and, and gabapentinoids. So it covers all up about a hundred of the most commonly used psychiatric drugs. Now, what puzzles me, Mark, about one of the issues surrounding withdrawal, you know, one of the really popular antidepressants, Prozac, generic name, fluoxetine, came out in the late 1980s. Why has it taken us so long to recognise the withdrawal problems that these drugs can cause? I guess that's the $64,000 question. I mean, on the one hand, withdrawal effects from these drugs were recognised very early on. So the first case studies of people having withdrawal effects from the SSRIs that Prozac is one of the most famous members of were published in the early 1990s in quite prominent journals. But it didn't really get into widespread medical education, I think, because drug companies moved quite assertively to squash the issue. And the way they did that was they basically held consensus panels in the 1990s that were groups of high-profile academic psychiatrists from America and the UK. They came up with a euphemism for withdrawal symptoms, which they called discontinuation symptoms, which I like to say is a bit like calling a car crashing into a wall, you know, a discontinuation event involving a wall. You know, of course, withdrawal symptoms in reality can be incredibly severe, can last for months in people's lives, can be debilitating, people lose their jobs, some become housebound, bedbound, some can't tolerate it and end up taking their lives. So to call it discontinuation symptoms, which sounds clinical and unimportant, you know, was a very clever marketing move to make people less concerned about it. But Mark, it doesn't help explain why. You know, as you say, these are incredibly commonly prescribed drugs, even if initially the doctors hadn't read the relevant literature. So many of their patients must have been coming back in saying, I'm having real problems coming off these drugs, whether that's GPs, whether that's psychiatrists. They published papers that described the symptoms as being brief and self-limited over a week or two. They did that based on studies 
for people taking antidepressants for eight weeks, it is true that people who stop antidepressants do generally have brief and mild symptoms. They put out that message through a half a dozen academic papers, which they circulated to doctors. So now doctors, the thought leaders and the people they're lecturing to are walking around with a category in their head entitled discontinuation symptoms, which are brief and mild. So when a patient comes in and now says, doc, I'm having a horrible time coming off these drugs. I'm having panic attacks. I can't sleep. The doctor is thinking, well, that doesn't match discontinuation symptoms, which are brief and mild. So what you must be experiencing a return of someone's condition or a new mental health condition, because what the education on the topic was, was so different from what the reality was. Doctors are notorious for misdiagnosing these issues. Doctors are constantly told to be on the lookout for the condition returning. It makes me think of that university gag where a group of university students dress up as policemen. University students go to a group of workmen and say, there's going to be policemen coming along who are actually just university students dressed up as policemen. And they're going to tell you to stop working, but it's just a gag. You can ignore them. And went up to policemen and say, there's a group of university students dressed up as workmen working in the road, but it's just a gag. And of course, with two different ideas in their minds, these people screamed at each other, the policemen and the workmen. I think it's the same with doctors and patients. Doctors have been told these aren't really withdrawal symptoms. This is relapse. And so patients find that they're screaming at doctors to be heard. And in fact, it reinforces doctors' impression that these drugs are effective. Because when people stop them, they seem to get very unwell. And it reinforces in doctors' minds that patients need to stay on these drugs for long periods of time. Because when they stop them, they get really unwell. It's a very neat and vicious little circle of, of reasoning. And what's the difference between a drug that causes withdrawal symptoms and one that causes addiction? So again, this is another source of consternation and misunderstanding amongst doctors that causes part of this issue. There are two terms in pharmacology. One is addiction and the other one is dependence, sometimes known as physical dependence or physiological dependence. And they unfortunately became mixed up because the DSM-3 committee, some of the members thought that the word addiction was pejorative. And the DSM committee decides what the various categories of psychiatric illness are going to be. It has huge influence in influencing how people talk about conditions. And so when they decided to use the term dependence instead of addiction to avoid this pejorative flavour to it, that led to huge confusion. So in pharmacology, physical dependence is what happens when you use a drug that affects the brain chronically, if you use it multiple times. Your brain and your body will become accustomed to the drug, they will adapt to the drug, and that is called physical dependence. So for example, I imagine everybody in your audience is physically dependent on caffeine. They probably use it every day, you become more tolerant to it. Physical dependence means both tolerance and withdrawal effects. It means the drug will have less and less effect over time because your brain becomes accustomed to it. And because your brain is used to it, when you stop it, your brain will miss it and you'll get withdrawal symptoms that can be psychological or physical. I imagine that no one in your audience is injecting caffeine, stealing it, or uh, selling their bodies in order to get more caffeine because they're not addicted to caffeine. So addiction is something extra on top of just physical dependence. It means craving, compulsion, use despite consequences. And so, for example, for antidepressants, addiction is not an issue. People are not 
getting high off it. They're not misusing it. They're not abusing it. They're not snorting it. It's not an addictive substance. But like caffeine or nicotine or a variety of other substances, it does cause physical dependence. That is, your brain and body get used to it, and when you stop it, you get withdrawal effects. And so for a while, there was a group of academics saying you can't really get withdrawal effects from antidepressants because they're not addictive. So they were being very misleading because while antidepressants are not addictive, they certainly can cause and do cause physical dependence and withdrawal effects. As an aside, for most drugs like benzodiazepines, Valium, most people are using those medications as prescribed by their doctors. It's only a very small proportion of people that are addicted to them, but a very large proportion of people will have withdrawal effects when they come to stop them. This seems like an academic point that I'm laboring, but in real life, it has very big consequences because sometimes, this is more for benzodiazepines, when patients come in and say, I'm having real trouble coming off this drug, I'm getting withdrawal effects, can I be put back on it? The doctor will think, ah, if they have withdrawal effects, they must be addicted to the drug, they must be misusing the drug, and I don't prescribe to addicts. And in some cases, they will say to the person, I'm not going to give you this medication anymore because you're clearly addicted to it and misusing it, when all they've done in most cases is use the drug as prescribed and experienced physiological withdrawal effects when they've come to stop it. This kind of ignorance can, can cause people very serious issues. And what are the sort of withdrawal symptoms that patients experience? When it comes to antidepressants, and, and SSRIs are the most commonly used antidepressants in the world at the moment, because these drugs affect so many different aspects of our body and brain, the withdrawal symptoms you get are extremely wide-ranging. The psychological symptoms are what are most confusing for patients and for doctors. They include low mood, anxiety, panic attacks, tearfulness, trouble sleeping, and, and even being suicidal. And of course, the reason why that is most confusing is because I've just listed most of the diagnostic criteria for depression or anxiety. And so when doctors see that and they're poorly informed about withdrawal, they will jump to the conclusion that someone is having a return of their mental health condition or, or perhaps a new one. We know that those symptoms are withdrawal symptoms and not just a return of someone's condition because they are found even in healthy volunteers who have been put on antidepressants or people who have been put on antidepressants for reasons other than mental health conditions like for pain or the menopause, and they still uh, demonstrate those symptoms when they stop them. The other set of symptoms, known as physical symptoms, generally can involve the gut because the gut contains a lot of different serotonergic nerve cells, can be general headache, dizziness, trouble with balance. You also can get quite distinctive neurological symptoms, things like brain zaps, this feeling people have in their heads that either their brain has been switched off for a second or a little lightning bolt has gone through them, which can be very uh, unpleasant. People can get all sorts of funny sensations, pains, uh, numbness, because I think, although it hasn't been researched very much, I think this is because the entire nervous system is affected by antidepressants in quite profound ways, and these are often revealed when people stop their medication. And the other aspect is cognitive symptoms, things like trouble concentrating, trouble with memory, that can really make it hard for people to work and to think straight during withdrawal. So there's a very, very wide range of withdrawal symptoms. Now, you pointed to the trials on healthy volunteers to show that these aren't just people's illnesses returning, 
But on a case-by-case basis, when it's just one patient in front of you, how does a doctor tell the difference between withdrawal symptoms and the return of the original disease? You're putting your finger exactly on a, on a very important issue, which is it's very easy when you see a thousand patients all together, you can see these patterns, but a doctor has to see a single person. There's three aspects to look at, but the first thing is a doctor has to even know that withdrawal symptoms are a possibility. So they have to have that in their mind. I think the three things that are most helpful are the timing of the symptoms. So withdrawal symptoms often come on soon after a dose of antidepressants has been reduced or stopped. Some people experience withdrawal symptoms if they miss their dose by a few hours. Relapse or a return of someone's condition often takes months or years, depending on how often their symptoms tend to recur. It can be a bit confusing, though, because sometimes withdrawal effects from antidepressants are delayed in onset, something which I hadn't appreciated when I first came into this field, but I've seen a lot of now. And so sometimes people can present with withdrawal symptoms, with quite characteristic symptoms, days, weeks, and sometimes even a few months after stopping medication. There's a group of papers that suggest that's because the drugs stick around centrally in people's brains longer than we thought, and that can make it confusing. The second aspect that, that helps to distinguish withdrawal symptoms from a return of someone's condition is knowing what symptoms they had of their condition to start with and comparing their list of symptoms to what they present with when they stop their medication. So the physical symptoms are probably the easiest to spot. Most people don't have headache, dizziness, trouble with balance, or electric zaps in their underlying condition. So that makes it easy to see. What I often see is emotional symptoms are more common, I would say, than physical symptoms. And when the symptoms are different from the underlying condition, people should be suspicious of withdrawal. So if someone went on the drugs because they were depressed, low in mood, slept all the time after their mother died, and now coming off the drugs, they're anxious, they're panicked, they can't sleep. Those are completely different emotional symptoms to their original ones. And while it's possible they've developed a new condition, it's much more likely that they've developed quite typical withdrawal symptoms. So I think that's important. And the last aspect is, better in retrospect, is how quickly they respond to being restarted back on an antidepressant. So if it's withdrawal and you started on an antidepressant soon after you stop them, often the symptoms can go away in a few days, even after a dose or two. In general, if it's an underlying condition, it can take longer to respond. And what percentage of patients have these problems? There's two things to say about this. So number one, in studies done by drug companies, after generally short-term use, though sometimes a few months, but mostly a few weeks, about 50% of patients will experience withdrawal effects of some sort. But what is really at issue here is what proportion of patients experience the kind of severe, long-lasting, debilitating symptoms that I've experienced and that a lot of people I see have experienced. There are not great studies on that because no one's really been interested enough to look. And so it is still contested. Some surveys of patients have found that up to one in four of people that experience withdrawal effects will say that they're severe. It's possible that that is looking at a kind of self-selected group, so it may be a bit less than that. We've done some work that we'll publish next year that says it's probably similar to that, but slightly less, so that there's probably about one in five or a little bit less people that experience quite severe effects when they stop. And importantly, it's related to how long they've been on medication for. So if you've been on the drugs for eight weeks, chances are you will not have any problem stopping. If you've been on the drugs for more than three years, chances are you will certainly have serious problems in stopping. And as we know, there's quite a large group of people 
in America and in Europe and in the UK who are on these drugs for more than 10 years, that does start to place them in a high-risk group. And the other aspect is how long these symptoms last for. And again, there's not good data on that, but we know that at least a portion of people will experience withdrawal symptoms that last for months or sometimes years. And most doctors and patients find that very surprising because these antidepressants mostly leave your body in a few days or at most a few weeks. And so people find it very peculiar to hear that these symptoms can last for months or years. But what they people don't appreciate is it's not the drugs leaving your body that causes the symptoms. It's the changes to your brain that have been caused by the drug. It's how long it takes for them to resolve. Brief analogy is if you're in a very bright room and you walk into a very dark room, we often can't see very well because our eyes haven't accommodated to the darkness. The time for the light to disappear as you walk into a room is negligible. The reason why we have that withdrawal from light in this case is because it takes a while for our pupil to reaccommodate to different light conditions. The same is true for our brain. Our brain takes quite a while to reaccommodate to there being less drug about. And we know from studies of animals and also of humans that that can take people months or years. And I think this belief that once the drug is out of your system, problem is over, helps explain why in the past guidelines have suggested short tapering of between two to four weeks. But actually, you're arguing that's much, much too short. Exactly. The two to four weeks, which we know was not based on any evidence. We know, for example, in the NICE guidelines, it was the consensus of the panel. And that consensus came from a single study that showed that stopping antidepressants abruptly, that means in one day, caused too numerous withdrawal effects. And so they decided that two or four weeks was about right. Probably in their minds was exactly the thought you've just expressed, that that's how long it takes for the drugs to leave your system. What we have proposed and what is now the guidelines in the UK, both from NICE and from the Royal College of Psychiatrists, is that tapering should take place over months or years. And that is exactly consistent with how long it takes your brain to get used to the drug not being there. So the idea is if you taper at a rate that is gradual enough, your brain can accommodate to that as the changes are made and not cause huge disruption. Whereas if you race off the drug, your brain is left scrambling because it's really missing that input it's become used to. One of the things I was really interested to see is that these drugs don't have a linear effect on the brain. One milligram might have half the effect of 20 milligrams. Exactly. So that is one of the most surprising findings in this area. When I saw a study showing that, I spat my soup out. The reason why I did that was because for years, patients have worked out through trial and error that going down by smaller and smaller doses seems to make it easier to come off their drugs. So for example, they start at 20 milligrams. They can reduce to start with by a couple of milligrams without trouble. By the time they're down to five milligrams, they can only reduce by half a milligram. And doctors would often laugh at them. When I said something like this to a few different doctors a few years ago, they, they said it didn't make any sense. It was ridiculous. Patients were being very neurotic and, and creating problems that were not there. When I saw a neuroimaging study showing that the pattern of effect on the brain exactly matched what patients were saying, I was um, shocked by it because it shows exactly what you've just said. Very tiny doses of medication can have large effects so that one milligram can have exactly almost half the effect of 20 milligrams. And what that says to us 
is the way that doctors generally advise to reduce medication doesn't make physiological sense. So going down, say, 20, 15, 10, 5, 0, which seems intuitively appealing, same dose reduction each time, actually causes larger and larger changes in effect on the brain, which causes people more and more withdrawal effects, which patients would report and doctors couldn't make sense of. It's a bit like walking down a country lane that starts off just a little bit declined and then becomes steeper and steeper until it turns into a, an almost vertical cliff and people fall off that last bit of the cliff and doctors turn around and say, well, if you've had trouble coming off, then it's very likely that you need the drug. And so we have proposed a new approach to tapering, which is called hyperbolic tapering because it matches that hyperbolic shape, just sort of an upturned half of a U. You make larger changes to dose at higher doses, but you have to make smaller and smaller size reductions at lower doses. So right towards the end, the last few milligrams are the hardest to come off. And that approach in a few studies now that have been done seems to be much more successful in getting people off their medication than the kind of rapid and what are called linear tapers that most doctors have employed in the past. And it was very good to see that NICE and the Royal Court of Psychiatrists have now incorporated this into their guidance, although I don't think the, the guidance is clear enough or detailed enough for a lot of doctors, but it has been a step forward. So basically, it makes more sense to reduce the drug in terms of its effect on the brain rather than on the physical amounts you're taking. Exactly. So rather than reducing by even amounts of dose, say 20, 10, 5, 0, it makes more sense to reduce by even amounts of effect on the brain. And that does give you this hyperbolic pattern of dose reduction, which makes physiological sense. So that means that patients may need to go down below the minimum therapeutic dose. How can a medication less than the therapeutic dose still have an effect on the brain? Right. So again, this is another misconception that people generally have. Doctors will often say to patients, you know, the doses that you want to use are homeopathic. You can just stop the drug because they have sort of been taught, as I was taught, that it's sort of the floor. Once you get to the lowest therapeutic dose, that's the end of it. But what neuroimaging shows us, and actually a wide variety of other studies, that doses beneath a therapeutic dose do have effects on the brain. Remember that therapeutic doses are for a particular indication. So it means that a drug company has tested, say, 20 milligrams of citalopram for its effect on, say, depressive symptoms. But drugs you know, all have effects on multiple systems, not just on the intended effects that a drug company licenses them for. And we know that the effects start at small doses. And so it's quite possible for drugs to have quite profound effects at lower than therapeutic doses. And that's very important for doctors to take into account when they're tapering people off these medications. But just because a trial uses a drug at a certain dose doesn't necessarily mean that a lower dose might not also have an effect. Often using a high dose might have a more dramatic effect. But could it be that actually this might indicate that in some cases we could use lower therapeutic doses? The short answer to your question is, is yes. So because of the shape of the effect curve, you're right, higher doses generally have more effects. But the steepest, the period of time where the drugs have the most effect are at small doses. And so, yes, using much smaller doses of drugs in general probably will have quite a large proportion of the effect of using them at higher doses. And that suggests that they might be more useful at lower doses. On the particular issue of antidepressants, there is a very contested argument as to whether they have an effect that's useful for depression or anxiety at any dose. 
But what you're saying is generally true for all medications. Presumably, if one's going through a taper, you've got to spend a certain period of time at each level of medication before going down again. Exactly. The process of tapering is essentially working out for a particular patient at what rate can their brain accommodate changes in, in their dose. And you're right. One way to do that is to make reductions, say, every two or four weeks to see what a patient can tolerate. Everyone's a little bit different, and so you've got to modify things to suit an individual patient. Once they've accommodated to that dose, then you can start reducing further. A useful analogy I use to patients, which is something similar to the bends. When you go deep sea diving, when you come up to the surface, you've got to come up at a slow rate. If you come up too quickly, you get something called decompression sickness, otherwise known as the bends. And that's because when you're down at deep levels in the sea, there's very high pressure that pushes gas into your vessels. If you shoot up too quickly, as the pressure drops, gas shoots out and causes damage to your tissues, and it causes all sorts of symptoms, headaches, and feeling awful. And so divers are taught to come up slowly from the bottom of the ocean at a rate that doesn't cause them problems. The treatment, if it does happen, is they get put down at the bottom of the sea again in a compression chamber that simulates that. And I think coming off medications is very much the same. Your brain has gotten used to very high levels of serotonin and other neurochemicals. And what you've got to find is the rate you can reduce it that doesn't cause a big destabilization of your system. If you go too fast, you've often got to go back and come down a, a lot more slowly. And how far back do you need to go, Mark? So it really depends on where people are. Sometimes people need to go back just a couple of steps to the doses they were at in the last few weeks. If people get into a lot of trouble, sometimes they need to go back right to the beginning and go even more slowly. I would say that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure because once you get into trouble, it's much harder to reverse than trying to go slowly to start with and avoiding trouble accumulating. And that's my approach with patients. So if you take a drug, say like Ciroxat, generic name, Roxetine, how long might a patient take coming off that? So Paroxetine or Ciroxat is one of the highest risk antidepressants for withdrawal probably the highest. And so people who are on it long-term have great difficulty in general coming off an antidepressant like that. And I have seen it not unusual that people will take two years or more to come off a drug like that. They've been on long-term. I've seen people who have taken five or six years to come off that drug. The Royal College of Psychiatrists itself uses paroxetine as an example. And they give an example of someone taking three to four years to come off of it. A very prolonged process. And what effects how long it takes to come off a particular drug? There is not a huge amount of research in this area because, again, people haven't been interested. Drug companies haven't funded the research. We know that there's four factors that play some role. One of them is the type of drug you're on. So we know that certain drugs come with higher risks, including drugs like paroxetine, drugs like venlafaxine or Effexor, and drugs like desvenlafaxine and geloxetine used more in America. We don't exactly know why those drugs are worse, possibly because they leave your body quicker or because they affect a variety of different receptors. The second issue is length of time you've been on the drugs. That has a very strong effect. As I've said, a few weeks on the drugs, most people don't have any trouble. Once you're on the drugs for more than a few years, people have increasing amounts of trouble. We know that in England, about half of people on antidepressants have been on them for more than two years. And there's a group of people who've been on them for more than five years. And those are the groups who are going to be at greatest risk in America, order of people are on the drugs for more than 10 years. So there's a very large group of long-term users at very high risk of problems. 
The third aspect is their dose. Being on a higher dose has a slightly higher uh, risk, not as much as you would think. And in part of that is probably because of these diminishing effects of higher doses. And the last is people's past experience. If you've had terrible time coming off last year, chances are you'll have it this year. And in fact, there does seem to be cumulative effects that the more times you try to come off, the harder it seems to be each time. Those are what we know so far. There are probably lots of individual factors and things that we don't understand yet because there needs to be a lot more research into what causes these issues. What about the half-life of a drug? How does that affect withdrawal? So there's been a little bit of debate about that. Yes, it does seem that the drugs that do cause the greatest withdrawal effects, like paroxetine, venlafaxine, do tend to have short half-lives. Then there are drugs that don't have quite as short half-lives, that don't cause quite as much trouble. The drug you mentioned, Prozac, fluoxetine, has the longest half-life. And it probably does have slightly less withdrawal effects than other drugs, but not that much less. People can still get severe withdrawal effects that are long-lasting from fluoxetine. So it's still debated as to how much the short half-life plays a role. It it may play some role. So why might a longer half-life make withdrawal easier? The idea is coming off the drug more slowly gives your brain more time to readapt to lower levels. And with a drug with a long half-life, there's sort of a natural inbuilt tapering that if you reduce the drug, because it takes a while for the drug to come out to a lower dose, it gives a bit of inbuilt time for your brain to adapt to it. But for a long time, people thought, well, you can just stop a long-acting drug because it's self-tapering. It'll look after itself. I think that's not accurate for most people. I think it will take a few weeks for a drug like that to come out of your system, and that's not long enough to give your brain time to readapt. So there probably is an advantage to a long half-life drug, but not so much of an advantage you can just you know, stop it instantly. And Mark, if people are tapering with very low doses towards the end, and these are below the therapeutic medication dosage, how do they get hold of these very low levels of medication? So this is another really key question because there is more widespread acceptance of the need for this sort of tapering in England. I think it's been too slow for doctors to have been educated on it, but guidelines have changed. It presents a very significant practical barrier to doctors and patients because the health system is used to prescribing tablets. Tablets are the cheapest version of the drugs. They're widely available. And the issue comes that to make up these small doses to get off the drugs, you can start by splitting tablets in half or in quarters. Most doctors are aware of that. But there's a point at which even that is not small enough. And there are issues with accuracy with some tablets because they can break apart and turn into powder. And that means there needs to be other options for people. There are really three or four main options people can pursue. One is for many of the antidepressants made in England, the manufacturers make liquid versions of the drugs. So that's true for fluoxetine, it's true for venlafaxine, it's true for citalopram and sertraline are the most commonly used drugs known as Celexa, Zoloft, Effexor, and Prozac. Once people have the liquid version of the drug, they can use small syringes or droppers to make smaller doses. The problem is at the moment in England that the health system is used to discouraging people from using those formulations of the drug because they're more expensive. And so most doctors don't know that liquids are available, or if they know it, they're not keen to prescribe it. They've been taught not to use it because it's expensive. There has been a signal from NICE that the culture should change because they recommend using liquid versions of drugs. And so doctors should 
update their practice to reflect that. I know a lot of patients who contact me saying they've gone to their doctor, doctors have refused to prescribe a liquid. There are other options like dissolving a tablet in water, which sounds a little bit like asking people to become a Walter White figure from Breaking Bad, but it's actually commonly used in in medical practice to give medication to people who can't swallow because of various issues. And so there is actual guidance from the NHS on how to put a tablet in a glass of water, stir it up with a spoon and take out a portion to make a smaller dose. There is also compounded medication. For example, there's something called tapering strips available from Holland that doctors can order in as an unlicensed medication. And there's various other tricks that you can pursue. For example, various drugs come as capsules that you can open up, take out and count beads. That's very commonly used for drugs like venlafaxine, angeloxine or Cymbalta. And so all of those are possibilities which doctors can help patients with by prescribing the right kind of formulations of drugs. And particularly in the States, you often have compounding chemists who can presumably help as well. Exactly. They're much more widespread in America than in the UK. They exist in the UK. They're a bit harder to get get a hold of. And there are some chemists that have become specialists in this area, like the tapering strips guys in Holland. So presumably, Mark, this all becomes much more complicated if you're trying to taper off several drugs. It does. There is very few studies looking at what to do with people on multiple drugs, like I was. There are all sorts of rules of thumb that people employ. The most research has been done in stopping medications in older people or people with intellectual disabilities, issues that come into play, which drug is causing someone the most harm and the least benefit, might be the first drug to reduce, or it might be which drug is the easiest for someone to come off to give them confidence in the process. It might be a drug that's known to be easy to stop or one they've started more recently so they haven't become as accustomed to it. Otherwise, you might use some sort of rule like which drug generally causes people the most trouble in terms of adverse effects. So it's a bit of a mixture of patient preference and sort of objective findings. We've discussed how a lower dose can have a disproportionate effect on the brain. Do we know why? Yes. I've done a lot of work with Professor David Taylor And that's because when I went up to various people to put forward this idea, a lot of them laughed at me, except for him. He said, that's the law of mass action. And the law of mass action is essentially the idea that in a system, when there's not much of a drug about, all the receptors are unsaturated. So every extra milligram of drug has an opportunity to have a large effect on the brain. I sort of think of this as like playing musical chairs when all the chairs are there. As more and more of the chairs are taken away, when more and more of the drug has occupied its receptors. It means there's less and less receptors for the drug to act on. And so when you get to higher doses, every extra milligram of drug has less and less effect, as in it's harder and harder in a game of musical chairs. And that's not just true for antidepressants. It's actually a law of pharmacology that's true for all drugs, which is why hyperbolic tapering actually applies not just to antidepressants, but to all drugs used in physical healthcare as well. But Mark, if I'm saying on Prozac and it's not working very well for me, my GP or indeed my psychiatrist might suggest increasing the dose. But what you're saying is there will come a point where actually that's not going to be very helpful at all. In fact, it's probably not very helpful right from the beginning. The, the study that has looked at what is the ideal dose of an antidepressant, published in the Lancet Psychiatry a few years ago, found that the optimal dose was the lowest therapeutic dose. That was the best balance of effectiveness although that is contested as a side issue, and side effects. So there is very little rationale to increasing the dose because you're likely to produce 
more and more side effects without very much of an increase in ineffectiveness to the degree that that exists. So why does that happen? Um, I guess there's there's lots of what might be called um, uh, non-evidence-based aspects to practice, which is doctors wanting to be helpful, trying to do things that they think will improve people's outcomes that isn't quite based on, on a strong evidence base. And I suppose you might apply that to a lot of the trials that have taken place on the SSRI drugs that show a statistically significant difference between the drug and the placebo, but a statistically significant difference isn't necessarily the same as a clinical difference. Yes, so that's right. People try to draw the distinction between statistically significance and clinical importance. So for example, if a weight loss drug showed a statistically significant difference from placebo, but you only lost 50 grams, it would be statistically significant, but not clinically important. This is one of the major areas of debate about antidepressants. There's now been hundreds of studies, probably a thousand studies all up, that show the difference between a sugar tablet and an antidepressant after six weeks is just two points on a 52-point depression scale where higher scores means more depressed. There are various ways to work out what counts as a clinically important difference. Some studies suggest as much as seven points on this scale. That's what a doctor can perceive the difference as. Some people say it's as low as three points. In any case, this two-point average difference is below anyone's measure of what counts as clinically important. And so there's been a lot of skepticism about the ability of, of antidepressants to have an important effect on people's depression or anxiety. Currently, do you think patients are given enough information, arguably about the effectiveness of the drug, but in particular, the possible withdrawal process when they're prescribed these drugs? So I don't think the patients are given enough uh, information to make an, an informed decision. You need to know a few things about a drug when you start. You need to know the effectiveness, you need to know the harms, you need to know the alternatives, and you need to know what will happen when you stop the drug. There are published surveys of patients saying that only between 1% and 2% were told about withdrawal effects from antidepressants. In some studies that we've done, it's a bit higher. I think it's it's more like up to 10% of people. But that means that a, a vast majority of people are not told about withdrawal effects. You know, Certainly from my point of view, if I had been told that it may take me several years to come off these drugs, that it, it may make me close to losing my life, I would have priced that into my decision to take the medication, of course. Information about the effectiveness of these drugs is not generally well conveyed, nor is the risk of side effects because these antidepressants cause more than half of people to experience sexual side effects. It causes memory and concentration issues. It causes sleeping issues. It causes emotional numbness, which can have a very big effect on people's lives. And people need to be aware of that when they make the decision to start. And also there are alternatives. So for example, in the NICE guidelines, there are actually 18 alternatives to antidepressants that don't involve medications that are as effective and as cost-effective. And so people should be aware that there are a wide variety of options for managing depression and anxiety that don't involve medications. And Mark, how much longer do you think it will take for you to go through the toping process? I mean, you've already touched on the dramatic effect this drug had at some point that you came close to taking your own life. I did. It had a profound effect on me. I'm hoping weeks from stopping Lexapro, which is a pretty exciting moment for me because I've been on that drug for more than half my life now, or about half my life. And I'm hoping to stop the last drug, metazapine, sometime in the second half of 2024. So I'm a few months away from what has ended up being about a five-year process. Wow. And how has your experience changed the drugs that you prescribe? I was taught and internalised exactly what my colleagues have been taught and internalised about the drugs. 
in the past, I would have thought carefully, but within the kind of understanding I had of their effectiveness and their side effects. Since coming off the drugs myself, you know, I've had a, a short, sharp education into withdrawal effects of these drugs, which has led me to re-examine you know, examine what I'd been taught about their effectiveness and about their adverse effects, especially their long-term effects. You know, what I found was not as encouraging or reassuring as what I had been taught. I don't make decisions for patients. I don't think that's the role of a doctor. You know, that's a very sort of old-fashioned paternalism for, for patients. But what I do do, which is probably different from how I used to, is give a very extensive informed consent to people, exactly you know, as I've outlined to you, how effective they are, what the adverse effects are. You know, I often say to people, which is very different from how I once was, doctors often say that piece of paper inside the drug packets written by drug companies, you know, ignore it, written by the lawyers, don't worry about it. I now say that piece of paper inside the drug packet, it's written by the lawyers, it's very important, read it. They don't write things that don't cause people troubles because there are, you know, huge numbers of common and less common side effects that people should be aware of. I tell people about withdrawal symptoms. And I also talk about how the drugs might work. If they do produce these small effects on depression, how do they do that? And you're probably aware that for a long time there was a narrative which really emanated from drug companies and their spokespeople that the reason why antidepressants work is because they rectify an underlying chemical imbalance in depression. Yeah, I interviewed your colleague, Professor Joanna Moncrief, about her research on this. Basically, the idea that depression is connected with serotonin abnormalities is unlikely to be the case. Exactly, exactly. So it, it can't be said that these drugs are you know, rectifying low serotonin, chemical imbalance in colloquial talk. And so there's a real question as to what are they doing? And there's all sorts of theories about different biological aspects but when you ask patients on these drugs, more than half, sometimes three quarters, will say what they feel is emotionally numbed. And what they mean is their emotional uh, you know, lives have been compressed. That's true for both negative and positive emotions, which might be a relief, I think, in the short term. But it can have all sorts of unforeseen consequences in the long term because it affects people's quality of life, intimacy, and all sorts of issues. So I think I would put the most likely way that these drugs work is by acting as emotional constrictors which might be useful in the short term, but may have all sorts of issues in the long term. So Mark, looking back, do you have regret about your early prescribing history with patients? I do. Fairly soon after I started re-examining the evidence-based around antidepressants, I wrote to an old boss of mine, quite upset, because I worked with teenagers, young adults between the ages of 12 and 25 for a couple of years in Australia. It was quite a good service. There was quite a lot of psychological help, but we also prescribed medications. And we never stopped the medications. I said, we need to follow up all of these patients to work out what happened to them and give them advice about how to safely come off their medications. And my boss, who was quite sympathetic, said, you know, I'm sure their GPs will be able to look after that. And I sort of thought, given what I've learned about what happens in general practice, that's probably not the case. So I felt very guilty that I hadn't done the right thing by those young people. And I guess that's what's propelled me to have done so much work in this area to educate the public and, and other doctors about the issues with these medications, especially how much trouble people can get when they stop them. It's part of what was the motivation behind writing this handbook and about lecture on this topic widely so that other people don't end up on these open-ended medications. If they do choose to use antidepressants, at least it won't be open-ended for year after year or decade after decade, and they'll have safe ways of coming off these medications 
yeah, I don't think those patients were ever contacted. Gosh. As you touched on at the start of the interview, prior to the handbook, you were basically finding the most useful information about withdrawal came from other patients, not from doctors. Yes. So I found that a very peculiar dawning of insight. When I was coming off my antidepressants, I was working at Institute of Psychiatry, King's College London, which when I was there, passed Harvard as the most cited research institution for psychiatry in the world. I was working with top professors from Oxford and Cambridge and King's, and I was doing a PhD in antidepressants, and yet I learned how to come off my antidepressant from a retired software engineer on a peer support website. So I found that very startling. I think that just shows how blind the medical profession has been to these issues and have led other people by necessity to work it out for themselves. So finally, Mark, if someone does want to come off their antidepressant, where should they start? Sounds like the handbook might be a good point. Yes, the handbook might be very helpful. I've said, you know, it's worth discussing these issues with your doctors, acknowledging that a lot of doctors are not well informed about this topic. I've suggested only half-jokingly that buying this handbook for your doctor might be the best Easter present you could give them. Get it rather dependent on your doctor, Mark, isn't it? How receptive they are to being told information by a patient. Yeah. The textbook is it's in the Maudsley series, which is a very well-respected series of textbooks. It's probably the main in Europe and in the UK and in Australia, and I think increasingly in America. It's a very widely used handbook for psychiatrists. Most psychiatrists I know will have it in their briefcase. And so it comes with a certain amount of authority as part of that series. My co-author, the senior author on it is Professor David Taylor, who is a very well-respected professor of psychopharmacology in England and, and, and throughout the world. And so we hope that doctors and other clinicians and other prescribers might turn to it for advice. There are other forms of advice out there. There's good guidance the Royal College of Psychiatrists. There is some scant guidance from NICE, which doesn't really have the level of detail that is needed to, to guide doctors through a step-by-step process. I think those are the main places to go for information for doctors. There are all sorts of online websites, places like the Withdrawal Project that translate these issues into helpful guides for patients. I would recommend to a patient uh, one, to do some reading, to look into these sources and to take some of them to a doctor. And you're right, their response to it might be quite varied, I might politely say, the English understatement. But also, there are more and more sources of information around for doctors. So I, I hope that over the next year or so, that doctors will become more and more accustomed. What has happened, and I feel a bit bad for GPs, because GPs have dozens of guidelines every year updated for different conditions. They are just trying to stay head above water. So I don't blame them for not being aware of changes, but we know it can take years for guidelines to be implemented in practice. I hope that different people will dig in and help to make that a quicker process for this. Well, really valuable information, Mark. Thanks so much for talking today. Thanks very much for having me on. That was a comprehensive and thorough interview. I can see you've done extensive homework. Thank you. Thanks very much, Mark. Great talking to you. Goodbye. Hope you enjoyed the latest episode of the podcast. And if you've enjoyed the show, if you could leave a review, that would be much appreciated. It really helps. Many thanks for listening. Bye for now. <laughs>